Welcome back to the Training Model Podcast. This is episode number five. Um, and today is our first real deep dive into um, the coaching world and how I view coaching and um, a couple of key sort of worldview understandings that will impact how you navigate and move through the coaching process, um, regardless of whether or not you're a strength coach, a personal trainer, a rehab specialist, or anything like that. Um, and this conversation has actually popped up via a number of different sort of avenues recently. It all started for me with um, when I was asked to be on the Just Fly podcast with Joel Smith, um, who uh, actually hadn't, which was kind of um, surprising to me, but he hadn't actually been exposed to the BPS model until only recently. Um, it's funny that sometimes you're in these little bubbles and it's, it's like a key co- topic of conversation uh, within your sphere, but then as soon as you move out and, and, and sort of expand who you're talking to, some of these topics and concepts that you have you feel like are well-known are, are actually still sort of permeating through certain areas of the industry, which was actually a really good discussion and, and it kind of opened my eyes a little bit when I had that uh, podcast on Just just fly sports, but um, that's sort of where this conversation has started popping up more regularly. I ha- had a, a number of people reach out um, and sort of ask me further questions about the BPS model and sort of the application of the BPS model within a technical world of biomechanics and all of that sort of stuff. And this conversation has consistently popped up uh, again uh, when I did a podcast with Stephen Sayun um, and then also with Hayden Edgerton, uh, the pain guy, which I don't think is out yet, but uh, we recorded that last week. And a lot of that conversation was sort of marrying these two ideas with the BPS model. And then also like this heavy biomechanics sort of focus within coaching and and within technique within the gym and performance and all that sort of stuff. First thing that we need to look at is what is a model? And when people discuss, like my business name here is the training model or training model. Um, like, what are we actually talking about when we discuss what a model is? It would be remiss of me not to quote George Box here um, with the quote that you may have heard before, but all models are wrong, some are useful. And it, it's such a true statement because when we think about what a model is and how a model helps us understand and unpack information that's in front of us, the way I view it is a model is sort of just like a framework that we have an understanding of. There's generally key principles or rules or in, in physics, in the physics world, mathematics, and these, there's structure to a model that gives it some sort of like rigidity. And, and it's actually, like, they're like principles that hold the model together. Um, and then once we have these key principles, these key sort of um, rules that we can observe and, and, and maintain within our decision-making, that is actually what we're going to start to use to Um, take on information, identify very quickly what is useful in front of us, what needs to be managed sort of um, acutely or or, or in in the real time currently and other pieces of information that's that's occurring in front of us, things that we don't need to think about or we can sort of like reject that information um, and, and kind of move on without having to grasp the entire picture. And I think this is, this is at least how I view models um, and, and why I push so heavily for young coaches to start to understand a model way of thinking. And that is because humans... Um, and our, our development of science is always going to be behind. We will never fully understand and grasp the, the nature of what is happening in front of us. We will never have a deep enough understanding of biology, physiology, physics, quantum physics and all of this sort of stuff to completely understand exactly what is happening in front of us. And we need models and we need these frameworks so that we can very quickly understand what we're seeing and 
actually take actionable steps to move forward with. And this is why coaches begin to develop their own models and their own way of thinking. They have a few key principles that underpin the model and they're the things that are really going to help dictate their decision-making. However, they don't need to grasp every single piece of information and completely understand exactly what is happening in order to make successful, productive decisions to move forward with. So, one example of a very um, a, a model way of thinking that has proliferated the industry over the last few years few years is Bill Hartman's compression and expansion model, and he has a few key principles that underpin the model, and that is this whole idea that uh, in order for things to move and for force to be produced, we have to compress the system. We have to move from a relative state of expansion and move towards compression. This compressive motion is coming towards midline. This is your internal rotation is the generation of force, and your external rotation is your opening up of space and available space in order to then go and compress into. That compression and expansion uh, is the key principle of the overall model way of thinking. Now, I'm sure if you sat down with Bill, he wouldn't be telling you that every single thing in the world at all times is either compressing or expand expanding. However, there are a lot of areas in which we can see throughout the universal world uh, and past the world into the universe where this compression and expansion principle is followed. So he has tried to take that same principle and apply it to human movement, which he has done quite successfully. He's also confused the fuck out of a shit ton of people in the industry, but that's all right because it's his way of thinking and it's his way of framing things. And it's not the right way to think about it. It's not the wrong way to think about it. It is just a way to think about how humans move. And we can view this same thing with different models. So another one that you might hear a lot of in the industry is that everything is gate and that everything can be boiled back down to gate. Whoever came up with this idea, for me, my exposure to this was PRI because my my fundamental understanding of PRI is that it's breathing and gait are the hu- two hu- main human functions that uh, sort of dictate how we navigate and move through this world. So if we can better understand breathing and gait and apply our model way of thinking through those lenses, we can very quickly start to decide what we need to do with the person that's in front of us. We can do some quick assessments and then determine, all right, we need this, this, and this because of our model understanding of breathing and gait and how it applies to human movement. So again, you may have heard that everything can be boiled down to gait. And this is another model way of thinking. Yes, everything can probably be boiled down to gait. However, It's not the right way to think about it. It's not the wrong way to think about it. It is just a single way in which we can frame and view human movement through. And once you've got a deep understanding of a lot of these models, you can start to identify where certain models are sort of limited in their application uh, because, again, George Box all models are wrong. That They don't have the full picture. We will never understand the full picture. However, every single model way of thinking gives us very useful, tangible um, steps and processes that we can start to implement in real time and, and very quickly and efficiently start to see progress through. Um, just one last model that is uh, and, and, and this is sort of the level through which we can get to model way of thinking is our understanding, our human, total human consciousness understanding of gravity. We understand that gravity is there. We can work out how it accelerates objects and the size of the objects and the air density and the, the sort of resistance to movement and, and all of that sort of stuff. We can work out how much force we need to apply down into the ground in order to project a rocket out and take it to Mars and all of that sort of stuff. Like we understand a shit ton about gravity, but at no point anyone ever has been able to accurately describe exactly what gravity is. Our understanding, our physics, our physics understanding of gravity is a model. It's inherently wrong. We don't actually get it. We just understand how it applies to the size of the earth and air pressure and resistance to movement and all of that sort of stuff. And it gives us a very 
accurate, useful way in order to then begin to make decisions and send rockets off into space. So this is not a new thing. It, it, these models might be a new thing to our industry. And this is something that Angus Bradley does really well, which is communicate the idea that strength and conditioning, performance, personal training, whatever you want to call yourself, is such a young industry. And we only have really begun to develop our own models and our own understandings of things probably only since maybe the last 70, 80 years. Um, and as a result of that, a lot of the ways in which we think and uh, feel and believe about our ideas, they're, they're actually very inaccurate. And this is why we're seeing these huge pendulum sh- swings in our understanding is because we're such a new industry and our models and our ways of thinking haven't actually been developed yet. So Um, And this is why I think it's really important to also look outside of our industry when you're starting to consume information and to look for things that could probably be a precursor to what is going to happen within our industry. And um, yeah, looking outside the industry is probably a really valuable thing. So now that we understand what models are and that fundamentally the human understanding of everything at some level is inaccurate and not correct and that as a result of those assumptions that we make and as we build these models and these frameworks of thinking and understanding that there are sections to models and processes that are not accurate because we don't have all of the available data and we never will have all of the available data um, we can now start to begin to the the, tra- the conversation uh, and transition it into what is the bps model Because the BPS model is another model. It's another framework that was created by George Engel um, in 1977, uh, who was a psychiatrist. Um, He developed a model way of thinking or a, a model way of understanding what disease and how disease sort of occurs and manifests within the physical world within the human experience and he he developed his model which was the bps model the biopsychosocial model so before we get to that understanding we need to know what happened before that and and the way that i view this um actually started in the 1700s um so a philosopher by the name of rene descartes uh, who was a French philosopher. His, one of his most famous quotes is, I think, therefore I am. Um, he's also kind of known as like the father of modern philosophy because of the influence of the French Revolution and in the 1700s and, and how much that impacted Western society as we think about it and know it today. But um, Descartes, created this idea i don't think he created it you could probably follow this back further i think it actually gets all the way back to like aristotle or plato or something but this idea of dualism or dualism within um the human experience and that is that we have the physical body that we own and and operate um and that's in the physical world but then we have and, and they describe it as the soul but then we have this soul this the mind the consciousness whatever you want to think about it which is and again this was their understanding was that it was it was a separate entity to the physical body and this is part of this whole understanding of sort of like uh death and resurrection and 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 that the soul lives on and all of that sort of stuff and that is because their understanding was that fundamentally the body and the soul were different entities one lived in this physical world this physical structure that we see and feel and can sense um, and it's actually the senses that provide the input to then for the soul or the the consciousness to then understand um, and Rene Descartes in the 1700s, he actually created this idea of dualism, which is that they are completely separate entities, um, the physical world and this soul or this consciousness that we have. Um, and the way in which they communicate is through the senses. So the way that Descartes understood what pain was, was that you would burn your hand And then there would be a process within the body. And he actually kind of described it as like a ringing of a bell um, so that something would be almost like tugged on within the body. I think he called them cords, but he would tug, putting your hand in fire, you would burn your hand. And then all of a sudden 
the brain would be tugged in some capacity and that is what actually promotes the painful presentation. Uh, and that is what is then felt within this mind and, and this consciousness. Um, and that all pain could kind of be boiled down to this tugging of the brain through these cords and all of this sort of stuff. That was in the 1700s. And then our understanding kind of followed that progression until pretty recently, until really um, the biopsychosocial model really began to proliferate, which was after 1977. But it kind of, that sort of like tugging idea of you burn yourself and then pain is presented or disease occurs because of something that's happening within the body. Um, that idea proliferated all the way into the the biome uh, biomedical model uh, of disease control. And that was that within the body, there are markers or there are biological markers that are presented within a disease state. So um, you, you may have an increase of certain enzymes, uh, liver enzymes or whatever. And as a result of those liver enzymes being increased, that was a precursor to disease. And that was actually going to trigger the disease state that then begins to present. And this is where the, the next evolution of our sort of treatment of diseases started to take place, which is a very reactive treatment of disease, which is that when things go wrong within the body, we treat the symptoms, we treat the processes, we treat the, the, the body, and that is what actually should be triggering the recovery of the disease state. Um, this left a huge misunderstanding for things like chronic conditions, uh, psychological implications to diseased states um pain and and the the one that constantly gets brought up is phantom pain so phantom pain may, may be somebody that has an amputated arm however they still feel arm pain they still present with pain in a way that they would have the arm there however it's not there it's phantom there's, there's no reason there's no there's not there's not even an arm there for them to feel the pain but how is their brain perceiving that they are in pain as a result of what they've gone through or or any of that sort of stuff so um and and this was the traditional biomedical model for so long and it is still so inherently sort of built into our society that when something is wrong there is a there is a physical trigger that can be improved or fixed to, to overcome that disease state or that painful presentation. Then in 1977, George Engel comes along and says, we need a new biomedical model. What we are doing is not helping chronic um, presentations of pain uh people that are presenting with uh, sorry so with chronic present presentations of pain quite often they would believe that there was uh like even going back further that those people had like demons or or sort of like um like supernatural forces within them and they would sometimes go to like psychiatrists for medications or different surgeries within the brain or something like that to try to fix these chronic presentations of pain even though there was no diseased state to be causing or damage or anything like that um so that would be one that would be one sort of limitation to the the outdated biomedical model another one would be that um that there was no influence on like psychological health and sort of like beliefs and expectations and, and previous experiences and history and all of that sort of stuff and how that can influence the current sort of subjective world that a client or, or a person is living in. Um, so he discussed that a lot. But the fundamental thing was that, that uh, Engel described is that our understanding of disease and diseased states needs to be updated and we need to better understand all of the available inputs that can be uh, impacting why someone is feeling and presenting in the way they are. It's more than just the physical body that they're in. It's also this psychological subjective world they, they have within their head, which is the psych of the BPS model. Biological, which I like to think of as the hardware of the human. It's the physical representation of the human. 
Psychological is the subjective world that is in their head, their lived experiences, their past beliefs, their expectations, and all of that sort of stuff. And then finally, so we have the hardware, we have the software. It's the the world or the environment or the culture through which that person has actually developed through. And that would be the um, the the social aspect of the BPS model that is that was presented by uh, George Engel. So. We have a hardware, we have a human, we have the psychological world that's within that human, and then it's the 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 total social surrounding that that person was in. Their environment, sometimes it's called the uh, social cultural impacts uh, of human of the human, social environmental. Um, the way that I like to think about that, it's just sort of like the it's it's all of the lived experiences and 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 the processes through people impacting that human's perception on life really because it it can flow all the way back to sort of like their birth and their upbringing and and all of that sort of stuff but all of that social social impact on the human impacts how that person is actually navigating and dealing with the world in front of them and Engel's idea with this BPS model was that it was a more, again, it was a model, it wasn't completely accurate, but it's a better framework to think about diseased states. Um, And it was, it gave us more sort of vantage of all of the influences on a human system all at once. Again, it's the physical world, the biology, it's the uh, psychological world, the subjective experience, and then it's also the cultural impacts and the cultural influences that have shaped that person through their development and to where they're actually at right now. So um, he he created that. And then over time, since 1977, it has just consistently shown to be... um, a a more well-rounded model way of thinking around disease. And the reason I keep bringing up disease is because along that pathway, eventually the rehabilitation sort of research began to pick up this BPS understanding of disease and start to apply it to pain. And again, pain is a form of disease. It can be a form of disease because it impacts life and your your experience of life and it can be quite debilitating to certain people and um, it, it can really like change your world uh, especially if you have like a, a serious injury with chronic pain and all of that like it is a part of these disease states but the research world eventually started to better understand that hey we are looking at pain in the old biomedical model which is that there is a physical reason as to why you're in pain there is a biological marker there is tissue damage there is something that is causing this pain presentation and if we go and have surgery if we go and fix the bone if we go and shave that down if we go and cut that thing there we are going to then improve the physical state which then is going to improve the pain presentation of the human however with our new understanding of this BPS model that impacts the entire human experience, we started to realize that that stuff doesn't really work as consistently and as accurately as we want it to. And that the lived experience of the human, the psychological impacts and the social cultural impacts are impacting this objective world, this objective pain presentation as much as the physical world is. And then this is where we get to um, all of these like asymptomatic research papers, like the common one that gets shared a lot on social media is like asymptomatic pa- um, populations with lower back and they scan, I think it was like 3,000, it was either 3,000 or 30,000. It was a meta-analysis um, of lower back asymptomatic populations and, and they just started to look at what percentage of this huge cohort of studies actually presented with physical... Um, with physical sort of uh, structural degeneration or disc loss or disc bulges or protrusion or nerve entrapments and uh, spondylothesis and all of these sort of things. And they scanned it. And what they realized is that uh, even within large cohorts of asymptomatic, so they don't have pain symptoms, we still see all of this normal degeneration of the structures and tissues within the body. And this has now been married and mirrored across pretty much every joint within the body. Um, So things like, um, I think 
labral tears within the shoulder. Um, they scanned like both the healthy side and the painful side, and they found just as many uh, structural damages and limitations to both sort of things. I think it's been it's been assessed, it's been studied at pretty much every joint within the body now. But the crux of it is our understanding of pain is that damage is not it is a cause of pain in some people but it's not the sole reason people are in pain and if you scan a 50 year old's body through whichever MRI x-ray or whatever it wants to be we're probably going to pick up a lot of past trauma and and breakdown and degeneration that isn't painful we're probably going to pick up a lot of that stuff within scans and because our new understanding is that pain is not does not equal tissue damage. Just because you're in pain doesn't mean that you are in uh, that you have, have have had damage occur at your body. So that was a little bit of uh, a long-winded rant, but uh, let's just recap. Let's have a little checkpoint of where we're currently at with this conversation. First thing is, what is a model? A model is a framework. It is a way in which we can very quickly identify what information is required to make an accurate or a, a decision to productively move forward with. Uh, models are inherently uh, are based on assumptions. And these assumptions mean that all of the models and the model way of thinking uh, that we use to productively move forward with decision-making, decision uh, they are inherently flawed and they are inaccurate, but that's all right. No model is 100% accurate and no model is 100% wrong. Every model has some utility and usefulness to them. And then within that, we have the BPS model, which is again, a model. It's, it's an attempt to... Uh, better understand what is occurring in front of us and what information we need to think about and questions and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, it also allows us to sort of reject information quickly if that's what we need to do. But the model, the BPS model, just helps us better understand what is occurring in front of us. And the BPS model is trying to best understand all of the impacts and the influences that a human has within their experience. So they have the biological, which is the physical world and the physical structure of their body and all the all of the process and the biology and the physiology and the anatomy and all of that sort of stuff we have the psychology of the human which is all of the internal thoughts feelings beliefs emotions expectations um, and all of that sort of stuff then we have the social aspects which is like the cultural influences the environmental influences and all of those sort of um, forces and and things that impact the human as the human has sort of developed and got to where they're currently at. And again, it doesn't just like end at a point like your, your childhood ends. It's, it's constantly occurring. The people that you hang around with, the, the information that they tell you, the, the people that you trust, the, are you a religious person? Have you had poorly lived experiences because of you've seen someone else go through things and all of that sort of stuff? All of that impacts the human at any one time. So we have these three kind of worlds or three kind of areas that of major influence for the human experience. And that's what George Engel was trying to create within the BPS model is that the physical biomedical model was not adequate enough to better best understand all of the impacts on a human on the human experience and then that biomedical model that transitioned towards the bps model and started to get challenged by the bps model eventually started to bleed its way into pain science and then from pain science it started to bleed its way into strength and conditioning performance training what we as um coaches sort of engage with within our work um and 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 this is one of the, I think, the limitations on how majority of the coaches that think about the BPS model um, have, and that is that they only consider the BPS model within a pain uh, sort of focus, and that the BPS model is really only impactful when we're considering somebody that's in pain. However, when we with our new understanding of the BPS model, and that is that we have a physical person with the psychological thoughts, feelings, beliefs, emotions, expectations, and all of that sort of stuff. We have this human in front of us, this subjective and objective human in front of us that has been impacted and sort of shaped by their culture, by their society, by their social environmental factors. 
that is not isolated to just diseased states or pain presentation or anything like that. It is actually how they then move forward and navigate through all of their processes um, and, and productive sort of steps within life. So that means that somebody who has engaged with a coach and come into a coaching experience, we need to best understand Yes, all of their physical qualities, their training history and, and their goals and all of that sort of stuff. But we also need to understand their psychological understanding of their current state and, and what their beliefs are, what their expectations of training are, what they want to get out of training, um, what their expectations of time frames and, and rates of progressions and all of that sort of stuff. Their belief around their own sort of progression. Do they believe that they can actually move forward in these, in these ways? Um, who has shaped their ideas? If they had come through a very negative world wrapped around uh around their physical pursuits. They see training as a form of punishment and they have to use it to burn calories and all of that sort of stuff. And that has impacted their sort of psychological state around training. That is going to impact the way in which we communicate, the way in which we navigate and build trust and build confidence and build a, a, a path to move forward with. It becomes a very bottoms up strategy when we're thinking about how we're actually going to help people with this better understanding model of BPS within the performance world. It's not just useful when we see a, a painful presentation. And this this actually got, um, so the BPS world actually got ref sort of challenged uh, by a research paper, which was called the inactive approach to pain. I'd highly recommend checking that out. But in the inactive approach to pain uh paper, they actually spoke about how dichotomizing and sort of reducing the BPS model down to either physical or psychological sort of factors. And, and, and this, is one of the, this is one of the reasons why I don't like to view the BPS model as a Venn diagram with the B, the P and the S. Is, and that is because it almost you almost think that these things are independent of each other and that there's a little bit of overlap between the B and the P and the P and the S and the S and the B and all of that sort of stuff. Where in reality, and, and this is this inactive approach to pain, in reality, those three circles are inherently combined at all points in time and the way in which we communicate the way in which we educate discuss ideas challenge beliefs uh implement training processes and and, and changes to um programming and and the direction of programming and the increase in volume and the decrease in intensity all of these ways in which we navigate and coach and help people they're actually influencing the entire experience of the person. So yes, an increase in volume is going to have a physical representation that starts to manifest, but an increase in volume, especially when paired with a narrative about training is going to get harder and you're probably not going to feel as recovered and we need to make sure that your, your external life factors are in place and all of that. When you piece all of that together, we're actually just fundamentally reshaping the way in which that humor is moving through the experience of training. And yes, all we really did was increase volume, but because of the narrative and, and the way we communicated it and the way in which we wrapped it up and delivered it to the client, we're actually having a far greater impact on their entire experience of the process of their new training program. And this is where I think marrying the BPS world with a... Um, with a practical application from a coaching perspective. I think this is the crux of it. And that is that it's more than we, firstly, we can't dichotomize it to being, it's either, it's either physical or subjective. It's either objective or subjective influences. They are the same thing all at once. But the most important thing is that with that understanding, it's how we communicate. It's how we educate. It's how we discuss and navigate conversations around training, around pain, around new exercises, around training um, structure, uh, progressions and and everything within a training experience. How we actually communicate is what makes it a more universal understanding of how that human is going to move forward and experience um, experience what occurs in front of them. 
And this wrapping and this like narrative understanding around how we're communicating ideas and how we're sort of educating clients, I think is a really, there's a good side point to this. And and this is this whole discussion of like, what is evidence-based practice? And we know that there's anecdotal evidence, there's like the hierarchy of evidence and there's the experience of the client and those sort of things all marry together to create what is evidence-based practice and actually moving through in line with evidence. But I think... Almost anything, and this is where like, especially within the pain world, but pretty much every form of modality of training and implement uh, um, and, and sort of like massage or stretching or um, foam rolling, SMR or like the pin one, the what acupuncture, anything like that. Like all of these things have a level of supporting evidence. They also all have a level of contradictory evidence that say they don't do anything and they don't work and there's no physiological reason as to why you're feeling better. But with our new understanding of this like whole psychological subjective lived experience, we can understand how those things actually improve people. When people go to an acupuncturist, they're going to someone they trust, someone they think is going to help them, somebody that has they may have been referred by a friend who had a great experience. You go there, you get a massage, you feel better, you leave there, you've had a good conversation, the person said they're going to help you, you've paid them, they, you trust them in some capacity, and then we see these positive outcomes actually begin to occur from pretty much every modality that there is from a rehab perspective. And then on the flip side, it's that, all right, in the objective world, we don't really have any reason as to why acupuncture helps, but when it's wrapped up in this entire subjective experience we see these positive outcomes that present themselves and that that consistently seem to anecdotally help people the way in which we can view evidence-based practice i think more so lands within how we communicate those ideas with people and and the classic version of this is like foam rolling in the gym and that is that if you've got a new client and they come in and they're they're like i'm like oh what do you do for a warm-up and like i normally just roll my quads out roll my it bet bands out it makes my knees feel better and then uh and then i get into squats if on day one i come in and i just start flaming all of those ideas and i'm like oh do you know how much tension is required to change the shape of the it band the it band can lift a car or you're not you're not changing scar tissue you're not doing anything like you don't need to do that you may as well just spend five minutes on the air bike get your heart rate up get your blood flowing a little bit better like if i just start coming in and challenging all of these ideas even though self-myofascial release isn't really an evidence-based practice, it doesn't really have much, if any, supporting evidence, the way in which I communicate and the narrative that I wrap up that conversation with my new client impacts their ongoing sort of trust and confidence in what I have to say. If on day one, you've just started shitting on their ideas, even though they feel better, they, they actively move better and they do all of that sort of stuff because of their small self myofascial release part it's that's completely fine like we don't need to challenge every idea we don't need to shit on everything and just sort of break down those barriers from the start but what it might mean is after three or four blocks of training you might just start saying like hey man like you might not actually need to do that smr stuff like, I think we can just probably get straight into training. Let's just hit some lighter weights and get the blood moving in other ways or anything like that. And they, because they trust you at that point, all of a sudden we can start to get them into more productive training. And, and it wasn't like this aggressive, challenging ideas. And I think this is where another breakdown of this BPS sort of understanding comes in is because as soon as you start communicating, as soon as you start trying to pass on knowledge and education to somebody, all of a sudden it's changing the way in which that experience is starting to move forward for that person. So the narrative is really important in how we sort of marry and understand this BPS model in a coaching world. I haven't even started talking about biomechanics yet, but now let's transition into biomechanics. So how can we marry this BPS world within a biomechanical understanding of sort of human movement? The first thing to this is that when I talk about biomechanics, when I talk about um, like gravity and the impact on the system and the the relative motion and all of these sort of things and increasing ER and IR and all of this sort of stuff, I am never coming from the vantage of pain. Like I'm not, it's never the forefront of why I have these discussions. For me as a strength coach um, and 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 
experiences of powerlifting coaching and all of that, all of my conversations around biomechanics really just come back to increasing performance within the gym. And the way in which we increase performance in the gym is we move well under high loads and then we actually crush training volume and, 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 and create an environment, create a productive program so that we can crush the required amount of training and increase our performance over time. That is always how I view and frame these biomechanical conversations. So you'll see when I'm making content, I might be talking about a sore shoulder, but I'm not talking about the sore shoulder in improving the pain of the sore shoulder. I'm thinking about ways in which we can modify the program, modify the mechanics, change an exercise or a variation so that we can continue to push training. It's always coming from a performance-based sort of grounding. It's never, I'm not a rehab professional. We aren't rehab professionals at Strength Culture. We are performance-based coaches. We want to create programs that you can push and challenge the client productively through. And when things present, when pain and niggles present, We use our models and our strategies to navigate that and ensure that we can continue to move forward with performance. It's never that a client presents with knee pain and then all of a sudden I'm thinking in my head, well, I think that they've got knee pain because they're missing tibial internal rotation and that tibial internal rotation means their foot isn't supinating. So as a result of that, we need to get their foot experiencing a pronation so that it can then re-supinate. I can get tibial external rotation, regain that rotation at the tibia, and that's going to remove their knee pain. That is not how I'm thinking within the biomechanical world of, um, or, or how I apply biomechanics. The way I apply biomechanics is, all right, this person is currently experiencing knee pain. What are our options? Well, all right, we're doing a shit ton of squat volume. Let's remove some of that squat volume. Let's modify and give them maybe some different exposures to knee flexion and extension, get them training through a full range of motion under different loads and different sort of implements so that we can regain some motion whilst we're still exploring and challenging them in other areas of their lower body training. That's the way I like to think about this sort of stuff. So I'm always coming from this performance-based background when I discuss biomechanics. So how do we marry this biomechanical understanding within this BPS world? And again, it just comes back to the narratives through which I'm discussing and describing things with clients and with people that we're helping. A great example of this is if someone comes in with lower back pain and in my head, I've got all of this biomechanics knowledge and I know that, all right, this person's extended. They love lifting heavy weights. They've just shown me their program and it is all just extension through the roof. They've progressively got stronger and as they've gotten stronger, their back pain and their intolerance to extension has gotten more and more and more. It's a married sort of understanding of progression of load. As they've got stronger, as they've done more, the pain has increased. I know that all right, if we can remove and reduce some of this exposure to this extension, we're probably going to see some benefits to this sort of training. With my understanding of the BPS model and my understanding of biomechanics, I'm not communicating with this to them as, oh, you have extension intolerant back pain. If you do this, this, and this, I think your back pain is going to improve. The way in which I'm communicating it is, no worries. As a result of your current program and how strong you've gotten, I reckon we've probably just done a little bit too much load. Uh, uh, We've progressed a little bit too much load too quickly. What I think would be a better way in which we can structure this program is let's give you some opportunity to expose the body to new positions. I'm going to teach you how to tuck your pelvis a little bit here, how to get a better brace. This is probably going to actually improve your squat long term. It's not going to be the main focus right now as we sort of let this lower back sort of handle itself. But right now, I'm going to give you an SSB squat. And this SSB squat is going to help you brace. It's actually going to give us a more upright squat, which means we're going to load our legs a little bit more. And we're probably going to take some back tension off the lower back. How does that feel? Yep, cool. Let's focus on this. Let's do this and all of that. And I'm using my biomechanical understanding to improve the presentation of what is in front of us. But the narrative is not wrapped around and focused on pain. It is always flipped and focused on performance. The other side to that is actually communicating and getting information from your client when you're actually talking to them about these painful presentations that they're experiencing. What is their subjective experience of the pain? When is it the worst? What do they think is moving the pain 
to progress or what is what do they think is causing the pain to progress what things that makes them actually feel better what things would they like to explore within their programming or exercise selection and how can we build that stuff in because we know that their psychological sort of world that they're in if they have input if they sort of believe and trust the process and part of that is them being part of building the process if we can get them to move along the process with us rather than us just like top down shouting the answers at them if they can feel that they're part of the process they're probably going to be uh, more in tune with actually initiating and, and doing the process and we're probably going to see better outcomes as a result of that as well so this is how I like to think about marrying the biomechanical world with this BPS understanding of everything that we've discussed today. A lot of it is just how you're actually communicating what you're doing and why you're doing it. Even when you have these deep understandings of biomechanics at the foundational level, we can never be sure that the biomechanics was the reason that they were in pain or was the reason that they were out of pain. All we know is we changed some things within that program and it meant that we actually started to see productive processes start to come out on the other side. So we've definitely covered some ground in this conversation, but I'm just going to make one final point and I'm going to shout out Greg Lehman. He's got a fantastic blog that covers this sort of uh, when do biomechanics matter? Uh, and a lot of it is around the performance world. And, and the crux of it is when forces are high, biomechanics matter immensely. And, and this is what training is. Training is both the acute and the chronic application of force and tension on the body to productively see adaptation and grow stronger from. But the example that he uses to, to sort of better, better see how this applies is somebody that ju is somebody jumping off a roof. So you might take somebody that knows how to land uh, and they understand the biomechanics, the movement that's required in order to jump off a roof and then land safely so they can run on and go and do their next parkour event, whatever they're doing. Um, or you could take someone that doesn't know how to land and they jump off the roof and because of the high amounts of force and their inability to absorb the force productively and roll and do all of that sort of stuff, they can do irreparable damage to themselves. And that is just a show that, that yes, biomechanics matter immensely when forces are high, when we're trying to produce um, technique and express high amounts of strength or hypertrophy training and all of that sort of stuff. Because the biomechanics is how the forces are applied to the human. And we can micromanage those forces and that load by adjusting technique and placing tension on different muscles or different areas of the body by shifting to low bars or high bars or SSBs or whatever it might be, whatever context you need to wrap that conversation within. Yes, the biomechanics matter for how we're dealing with the force and with the load. However, it is not the only thing that then influences both positive and negative experiences around the training process. And when somebody does get injured, if you wrap that narrative up with, oh, you rounded your back and that's what caused you to experience this back pain, all of a sudden you just start that process of building in no cebic or kinesiophobic, so the, the, the fear of movement or the fear of exposure. And, and if you're wrapping up your conversation and your narrative in those sort of connotations with particular movements or particular breakdowns or anything like that, that is where then this BPS world starts to show itself and, and can actually take you down quite negative routes where people then start to avoid movements and then they they overemphasize technique and then they, they, they're afraid to push themselves and to chase performance because they think that oh, if I push too hard, I'm going to expose myself to those positions and then I'm going to get injured again. Or if you wrap up the conversation around re injury rehab, so a, a good one would, uh, uh, with this, that has been productively sort of challenged over the last few years within research is like tendon and, 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 and rehabbing tendons. Just say you've got a client who's presenting with anterior knee pain that sounds like tendonitis or maybe you've sent them off to someone and they've they've been told yeah you have tendonitis 
Our new understanding of tendons is that tendons respond to load. We need to get them loading under different velocities and get them stronger and, and rebuild that matrix and do all of that sort of stuff. Like that's how we rehab tendons. But if you if you then go, all right, I heard that tendons uh, need load. I'm going to slam isometrics with this person. And you start wrapping the narrative up around their knee pain and their tendon rehab that isometrics are going to do this. And then we're going to go to eccentrics and then we're going to go to slow concentrics and then we're going to go to some plyometrics and all of that sort of stuff. We know that that's probably the most productive way to rehab an, uh, a knee tendon or, or any tendon in any capacity. But the way you wrap that conversation up really impacts the journey that that person's then going to go on with their knee pain. If you're telling them that, all right, if we do isometrics, yeah, they've got an analgesic effect and it does this, this, and this. And then that person starts to feel that maybe for a week or so, but over over time, it maybe it stops helping them or it doesn't actually produce that analgesic effect for them. And then all of a sudden they're thinking, oh, well, maybe I've got something else wrong and maybe it's this and maybe it's that. And they, they start this negative spiral because what you've told them to be the answer to their problem isn't actually what is actually helping them. Maybe they are, and then this is where maybe there's a whole bunch of other factors. Maybe it's their nutrient intake. Maybe it's it's part of their diet. Maybe it's part of their world stress and life stress and the internal load that's on the system. Maybe it's maybe it's the overall training program. Maybe it maybe it needs loading, but in a different capacity. And maybe it needs a different protocol. Like there's so many options as to how the biomechanics and the loading may help them, but there's so many impacts and, and other factors that also may be uh, changing the way in which they move forward and navigate through that rehab process. So the crux of all of this conversation is that biomechanics absolutely matter especially when forces are high and we're chasing performance. I think it's really, really important that when you come across clients and you're dealing with rehab or you're dealing with niggles and all of that sort of stuff, it's really important that we manage those conversations from a performance and productive manner. We're never trying to isolate and uh, like pick a particular objective thing that has caused what's pro what the problem is or a subjective thing, a life stress or sleep or any of that sort of stuff. We have to look at it from the total amount of information that we can gather from the from the client. You need to ask better questions. You need to productively manage the forces and the and the movements and, and, the, and the programming stress and all of that sort of stuff. You also need to productively manage how they're framing and viewing their processes within those negative experiences. So trying not to wrap narratives around their pain or around particular movements or any of that sort of stuff. Over time, yes, we're probably going to be modifying technique and doing all of those sort of things to either avoid or expose the painful area, but it's not how we're, it's not so much the process of that, it's how we're navigating the conversations and the narratives around those, those processes, which is fundamentally the crux of how to apply this BPS world, this all-encompassing objective and subjective reality that the human is, has moved through in the past and is continuing to move through in the future and building trust, building confidence in the program, trying to challenge those negative nocebic narratives that they may have themselves developed or picked up from other people or other um, other other people like squat you or whatever, like, like all of those impacts are going to change the way in which we communicate and navigate the process. But at the very core of how we're building in a biomechanical sense and understanding and applying it within a BPS model is that we can't only look at biomechanics for both positive and negative outcomes. And we can't only look at psychological subjective experience for both positive and negative outcomes. As soon as we make changes and the conversations that we that we have whilst those changes are occurring, that is how we're marrying those sort of things. And I think as a coach, as a strength coach, the most important thing is all of those conversations or most, uh, at least a majority of the conversations are centered around continuing to train and build robustness. Yes, we may have to modify technique to avoid provocative positions and loading and all of that sort of stuff, but 
that conversation needs to be wrapped up in a productive, positive conversation of let's just deload that area, but let's make sure that we're still doing this, this, and this around that area, still exposing good range of motion, trying some different loading strategies. Um, And that conversation is always built around performance and building robustness, building confidence, building trust, all of those sort of things. And finally, is actually getting the impact or, or getting... Um, some influence from the client themselves and navigating their understanding and, and what they feel has helped them in the past or what they think could be more beneficial for them or trying to bring them along for the journey so that they can start to develop a more robust psychological strategy when things pop up and when these negative things happen because everybody is going to go through processes within training, especially when pushing for for performance, where they experience these negative outcomes as a result of just the training process. Because training is stress, training is load, and if we overdo that, or if we don't recover from it, these negative physical things can begin to present in some capacity, which may or may not present as pain. Whether or not they feel and experience pain is a different conversation and, and we've touched on some of that stuff today, but for the most part, it's it's we've just got to make sure that we're always trying to navigate and develop robust strategies, both within our programming, within our understanding of biomechanics and load management and all of that sort of stuff at both an acute and chronic level, but also how we're navigating conversations and building trust and building robustness and trying not to nocebo our clients into fear avoidance of movement or avoiding certain things or positions because fundamentally none of that stuff is the reason as to why they are feeling and experiencing what they are feeling. It is everything all at once. And this is why the BPS model will continue to strengthen until a new model emerges over time that is slightly more accurate than the current model that we have. In the same way that it started with this idea of pain being like a cord that is pulled when we hurt ourselves and it pulls on the brain and it's that ringing of the bell analogy that the pain is just presented in the brain, which then eventually flowed into the uh, biomedical model, which is that there's biomarkers to pain and disease and we just treat the biomarkers and we treat those things and then we should see the benefits and the positive things occur and removal of the disease state. That was more incorrect than this new BPS understanding of disease state, which is that, all right, yes, all of this objective stuff is happening in the physical world, but there's also these lived experiences and beliefs and expectations that are wrapped around this objective world that also influence the ongoing disease state and painful presentations and all of that sort of stuff, which eventually flowed into the rehab world and then into that conversation of pain and biomechanics and when do biomechanics even matter and all of that sort of stuff. So um, I'm, I'm assuming I'm going to get more questions or more discussion points around this topic. Um, and if you want to ask those questions, you can DM me on Instagram. You can shoot me, um, you can hit me up at my website, which is trainingmodel.com.au. Um, I do this podcast weekly. If you're new here, I would recommend going back and checking out the first couple of episodes here at the podcast. I want these conversations to kind of flow on from each other um, because a lot of these conversations are really important and there's a lot of context and a lot of things that we need to discuss. So if you're new here, please go back and check out those first few podcasts. This is the first style of this type of podcast, which is like a real deep dive into a topic, but uh, I'm keen to do more of these. So let me know what your thoughts are. If you could help me share out or, or, or share this message out there more, uh, please share it on social media, tag me or send it to a friend who might find this conversation beneficial for themselves. Um, and then finally, uh, if you're a young PT or a young coach, Uh, Currently, I have one of my courses up, uh, which is my Business 101 course, and that is sort of like developing your business back end. So learning all of the foundational principles around business development, they cover areas of marketing, sales, retention, and finance, and also just business mindset. Um, and, and I'm confident in saying that that course, there's nothing else like that on the, uh, on the internet for our industry as strength coaches, personal trainers. Um, and it's really everything that I wish I knew seven years ago before I started really pushing to build my business. So it's all of the systems and the resources that I use to build strength culture and now training models. So please check that out. You can use the 
the code team meeting one word it's linked down below to to check that out a little bit more the final thing I will say actually is that um, this conversation and my model of coaching, uh, my coaching model course is actually going to be up on my website from December. Um, so if you're interested in jumping in on that, I think it's going to be $399. It's going to cover my movement model and how I view biomechanics, my coaching model and all of these conversations around principles and what are the key principles, uh, what are the key models that I use because I use a number of different models for how I frame and, and, and build out programs and and, and communicate and all of that sort of stuff and how I manage clients. Um, so all of that sort of stuff, as well as programming and my programming model will be included in that. That is going to launch in December. If you're interested in that, you can join my email list. And then finally, uh, I have a webinar on the 17th of November which is understanding center of mass. And center of mass is the key principle of my movement model and my biomechanical model. So if you're interested in learning more about how I view biomechanics and how I view movement, I would recommend coming to that. Just know that it's not the only way you could do it. It's not the only thing. It's not 100% correct. It's not 100% wrong. It's just the model that I've created to better understand human movement uh, as a result of my experiences and my sort of influences in my development as a coach. So thank you very much for checking out the Training Model Podcast. Uh, I will see you next week. And if you want to chat, just reach out on Instagram.